You afraid I'm going to knock it down again, huh? It could happen. I'm not used to picking my feet up that far. <clears throat> yes, if you have your Bibles with you tonight, we're going to, I'm kind of excited, <clears throat> we're going to finish up uh, the book of 2 Thessalonians tonight, 2 Thessalonians uh, from I think about verse 12 of chapter 2 through chapter 3, and then we're going to um, begin to focus on the prophets so uh, we're going to begin at the beginning of the prophets, and we're going to work our way through the prophets in the Old Testament. So it should be a, a, a fun study for us, kind of neat to get the chance to see, you know, prophetically what's going on in the world. It's kind of neat when you turn on the news and you can watch, you know, things the Bible said were going to take place, taking place before our eyes. So, so we'll be doing that in the weeks to come. But tonight, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and I remember as we look at the book of Thessalonians, it's such a great, uh, great book to study. And it is because Paul was there for a short period of time, one month, three weekends. He's going to share with them. He's going to touch all the basics of doctrine. And that church is going to blow up. And when Paul writes the first letter, he's, basically that's what he's telling them. You guys are doing awesome, man. Love and faith and hope. Things were happening. God was moving. There wasn't really any errors or anything. It was just a letter of, of exhortation, a letter of encouragement to them. And the second letter, he, he brought out the teaching in, in uh, 1 Thessalonians of the rapture, and they had some questions and some confusion about it. So 2 Thessalonians deals with that issue within the church. But the great thing, the great news is, folks, the church went without Paul. Paul wasn't there. In, in Ephesus, you could say, well, the church in Ephesus was founded because Paul was there for three years. He taught every day for three years. He taught in the Bible college there in Ephesus. I mean, he was really busy in that place. And, and God blessed it, and the church in Ephesus grew. But the church in Thessalonica, it didn't need Paul's presence. The encouragement for us in that is the fact that, folks, when the Spirit of God is moving and God is calling and directing for there to be a body of Christ wherever there may be a group gathering. When God is behind it, there's nothing they can do to stop it. I'm reminded of a very powerful underground church that just happened to be based in Japan. And, and the Japanese government for years and years and years tried to squash it, tried to wipe it out, tried to, to get rid of it. But it was strong and it was powerful. And it was located in Nagasaki. You may remember that name because the United States dropped a bomb on Nagasaki. And do you know that that didn't even stop that church? That that church is still thriving and moving today. It overcame all those obstacles, all those things. Wasn't, it's not because of a person, it's because of the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ, moving within the body. And that is what gave the, the church of Thessalonica their strength, even though he had only been there a short time. So Paul's going to begin his... his uh, Paul has long goodbyes. You ever notice at the end of Paul's letter? So he's going to begin his, his long goodbye to the church of Thessalonica. Uh, we'll see it uh, uh, as we begin in verse 13, chapter 2. But we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Man, I love this verse. We take a look at this verse. Listen, first off, he calls them beloved by the Lord. Now, when I read the book of Daniel and I hear Daniel being called greatly beloved of the Lord, it, it raises within me jealousy. I wish... I could be greatly beloved of the Lord like Daniel was. Well, the good news is you are. Because Paul lays it out here to the church of Thessalonica and to you and I. We are greatly beloved. How much, what more could God give? Seeing that he has already given his only begotten son. What would he withhold? What else is there that he could have done? He gave the greatest offering the greatest sacrifice he shows us the greatest love he lays all that out before us not calling us to do something that he hasn't already done already but simply saying as jesus said to his disciples you must take up your cross daily 
and come follow me. And so he first lays out this concept. Hey, greatly beloved. God greatly loves his people. But then look at this progression in the life of the believer. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation. Now again, often when we talk about the election of God, we, we bump into issues. Let me tell you a quick and easy way to get through those issues. One, the Bible teaches the election of God. That each and every believer was chosen by God at the foundation of the world. That's all it teaches. So stop trying to add double election and say that God elected other people to hell. It does never say that. Not one time. It says that God chose. And what was that choice based on? God's foreknowledge. And what is his foreknowledge based on? The fact that he has freely offered to every man... John 3.16, what's it say? For God so loved the elect? No, for God so loved who? The world. That he gave his only begotten son. That How many? Whosoever. So we don't have to go very far to deal with this, this issue of, of Calvinism and this concept that God has elected people for hell. It is absolutely untrue and not founded within the scripture. The good news is, the exciting thing is, that we're supposed to look at the other side of that equation and know that even if no one else would pick you god did now i don't know if you ever got the chance to be last i remember my my first day my i i i was such a sheltered little lad i grew up uh in redlands which is a pretty big fairly big town big small town in california and i went to a private school now there were seven people seven kids in my class that was it. And somewhere along the line, dad and mom ran out of money for private school, so they put me in public school. And I went from a class of seven to a class of 50. Man, I don't remember doing one assignment. I, I remember sitting in the back going, where did all these people come from? <laughs> what are they all doing here? And my parents moved from Redlands to a little town called Calamesa. And so we go to, I'm going to Calamesa Elementary School, the second half of fifth grade. I'm in another, my, my, that's the, the third school in one year. And, I, and I'm there, and I remember I'm out on the playground, and they're picking teams for kickball. And I'm the new kid. Nobody knows me from Adam. So I didn't get picked. A teacher had to put me on a team. And that's a bummer. That's a bummer. I was, I was kind of sad. And then they stick me in right field. Well, you know, that's that place where they put you. In case you didn't know, if you're a right fielder, that's where they put the people they think are terrible at playing <laughs> baseball. So, sorry. So they put me in right field. And I remember I'm sitting there and the, and the kid got up and, and the, the big guy, the guy who was the captain of the team, at, we ended up becoming good friends later on and and uh, but he's you know kind of worried about the new kid and good news is they actually kicked a ball my way and I caught it and so then I was in after that I didn't have to worry about getting picked last but the great news for us as believers is while we were yet sinners at enmity with God that scripture teaches us when we were at war physically at war against the kingdom of God that God gave his son to save us and he chose us for salvation i love that i love that because there is no greater amount of security than an understanding that you're you were picked of god you're chosen of god god chose you god did everything he could do to save you you accept the invitation that god gives and god does the rest and he is able to keep you all the way to that day, God is able to do those things. So first, he says, from the beginning you were chosen, um, and then through sanctification by the Spirit. Now, we talked about that a little bit this morning. Sanctification is the act of the Spirit working in our lives to make us holy. Now, we are not ever to get puffed up or proud about the fact that somehow we're doing things that we didn't used to do. Because God says it's a work of the Spirit in our life. 
It's not about us. It's not a, it's not a measure. The Bible says, if you want to measure yourself against something, measure yourself against the Lord. And if you think you measure up, measure again. Because you fall short. We're not to measure with one another. The sanctification is a work of the Spirit. What do we have to do? We have to submit ourselves to that work. Right? We can, we can buck against the system. Any of us who raise kids know the kids can receive discipline and learn from discipline and change, or they can buck against the system and, and think that eventually the paddle will be broke and, and they'll get their way. That's a long road, isn't it? We want to submit to that work of the Spirit that the Spirit would sanctify us, making us holy through His perfect work, and finally, the belief in the truth. Now, the truth is, folks, Jesus Christ. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Revelation chapter 19, Jesus said, there's a name, there's a name written on His thigh, the Word of God. In the book of Hebrews, in fact, if you want to just flip there real quick, I love the way the book of Hebrews opens up. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son. What does that mean? That God, every word that God has to say is completed in the work of his son. Throughout the Old Testament, what was the point of the Old Testament? Pointing to the Lamb, pointing to the sacrifice, pointing to the Messiah. What's the point of the New Testament? Pointing to Jesus Christ and announcing the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. What John did is he, is he pointed there to that Lamb. So as we see, the Word of God is truth. The Word of God is Jesus Christ. Jesus is God the Word. Every expression that God will give us, until we see him face to face, we have right here. Now, we may all desire to know deeper mysteries, but sufficient for us now is this book. And you can make a lifetime of studying this book, and it's not a wasted time. And even if you made a lifetime of study, you will not unravel everything that God has in it. It's, it's so amazing, for it is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Able to divide between the thoughts and the intents of the heart. God's Word will do those things. So, we see that we are chosen from the beginning by God. God wants us. God loves us. Nobody would love us more than God loves us. We're sanctified by the Spirit. Made holy by the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. And we are Uh, holding or believing in the truth, God's word and the work of Jesus Christ in our life. And so we see, in fact, the work of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, all wrapped up in that verse. Verse 14, to which you were called by our great gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. The calling that we have is not for our glory. It always bugs me, you know, it bugs me that people put their names on a Bible and make it bigger than the word Bible. I got a problem with that. I got a problem when people get a billboard and on that billboard, their name is the center of the whole thing. So-and-so's miracle crusade or whatever. For what? What is the glory? We are called by the gospel into service to Jesus Christ for his glory, that he would be seen. I remember a band that we had come through youth group many, many years ago. I kind of liked their name. They were called Shadow Box Puppets. Their whole point was we're supposed to be invisible. We, what we do should shine a light on Jesus Christ. If it shines a light on me, then, then I'm putting myself too far out in front. I need it to shine a light on him. Everything that we're able to do, we're able to do by who? By Jesus. It's His work. It's His Spirit that empowers us. And so, we want it all, whatever we do, to bring glory to Him. Now, everybody likes to hear a good job, right? We all like attaboys. We all like, we like to have those things. But Jesus said something interesting about that, didn't He? He said, if you, if you love and desire the praise of men, you have your reward. There it is. Enjoy it. 
Well, in that case, hang that. <laughs> I, want, I want the praise of my Savior. I want well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. Folks, we can go throughout the Scripture, and the Scripture indicates that the epistles written by Paul are Scripture. The, the Scripture indicates that all Scripture is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that it is God-breathed. Paul's saying, listen, hold fast to these traditions, the doctrines, the teachings, the manner of life that had been delivered to them, because that's the, the concept, truly, of the, of the Hebrew teaching. Hebrew teaching, folks, is not about, let me unlock my brain and impart my knowledge and put it in your head. It's more than that. It's not just the knowledge. It's not just understanding. It's the manner of life. It's the way it was lived out. And that's what Paul's saying. Hold to these traditions. Hold to the, the, the things that the apostles and the disciples taught and showed as they walked among you. Isn't that what Jesus did with his disciples for three years? He could have just sat down and went, and there you go. You know everything. But that's not what he did. He said, come follow me. And they walked with him for three years. And then Jesus sent them out. Now what you've seen, do. And that's that whole attitude of discipleship that the, that the apostles were putting out. Now he goes on in verse 16. He says, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. May the Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation. When does everlasting life stop, by the way? Well, that'd be a problem, wouldn't it? That the whole concept of everlasting means it will last forever. So when we consider that concept of the security of the believer, whether or not someone can lose their salvation, keep in mind that the Bible calls it everlasting life. It calls it here, he says, you have everlasting consolation. What does that mean? You have that comfort from God because the, the, Thessalon, the Thessalonians, they're going through hard times, right? They're struggling. They're, the, the, the push for the, the persecution against the Gentile church started with them. That's when Gentiles started being, they were killing Jews before then, but now it's hitting the Gentile world. And now the, the church is really facing persecution, but he says you have everlasting consolation with God. That God is going to provide you that comfort and strength that you need to go through whatever you face. Keep in mind, no matter how it looks or how it feels, that God loves you more than anyone else on the planet. And so, how much more can we hold on to the truth when God says in Jeremiah 29, 11, All, I know the thoughts that I think toward you. Thoughts of good and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Now, that means whatever I face and whatever, however it feels doesn't matter. The point is, whatever is going on in my life is for my good and God's glory. And if I realize that and recognize that, I can carry on. I can move through it. We have everlasting consolation. We have everlasting comfort and a good hope. What's he talking about? What's our hope? The Bible tells us very clearly what our hope is. Our hope is the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our hope is the return of Jesus Christ, period. That's our hope. I was told a, a story when I was in the Marine Corps of a unit that had been cut off. Maybe I've shared this with you before. It was cut off behind enemy lines, and they were running out of ammo, didn't have any way to fight. The enemy would, would continue to send out probes of men into their position, and they'd shoot them, but they were seriously like counting, like, I have three rounds left. I have two rounds left. They're running out of water. I mean, what are we going to do? If they keep probing, we're going to be out of ammo, and then what are we going to do? And they began to talk amongst themselves of surrender. Now, that kind of 
goes against the crowd in the Marine Corps, they don't ever like, even when they've surrendered, they didn't call it a surrender. They called it a fighting withdrawal. But they don't like to have that, to, to, to think about that concept. And knowing that, that platoon that was cut off, their company commander flew a helicopter over their position and threw out just a pile of notes. And all it said on the note was, we are coming for you. So they lasted until they came. If they hadn't received that promise that I'm coming for you, they would have gave up. But they held on to the promise. They're coming. All we got to do is last until they get here. And that's the same way it is with us in our relationship with Jesus Christ. All I got to do is last until he comes. And I don't really care how long that is. I'm going to look for it every single day. I have a good hope. The glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what I... In fact, Paul says, To everyone who loves his appearing, he will receive the crown of life. They get a crown. Everyone will get a crown who looks for the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So that's our good hope. May he comfort our, our hearts and establish you in every good word and every work. We want God to establish a work, folks, not us. That it's his work, that it's his move, and that he receives the glory for it. In chapter 3, he says, now finally, brethren, pray for us. I love this prayer that Paul asked for. And I think we could learn something if we would be willing to ask for prayer like he does in this way. Look what he says. Pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. His prayer, is, he's, his prayer is not pray that I get out of prison. Pray that, you know, this thorn in my flesh, that God takes it away. That this thing that is ailing me. It wasn't none of that stuff. What was his prayer? That the word of God would run swiftly. That it would just spread. That God's word would go out and accomplish what it was sent to do. That was his desire. Because really, folks, that's what we're here to do. That we would spread the word of God. That we would spread that word into all the world. And it's, it's kind of sad. But the bottom line is uh, more was accomplished in the first couple centuries of the church than has been accomplished since. There are roughly 50,000 missionaries in the world. And we have accounted for less of the world than Paul did. And so... Man, we want, don't we want that word of God to go? And how will it go unless someone's sent? And how will they be sent unless you send them? Unless someone puts them out? We can't all go, can we? We can't all be in the jungle. We can't all go to those places. But we can be a part of a support for those places. Jesus said, if you offer someone a glass of water in my name, you take part in their ministry. You take part in what they accomplish. And one day you'll be standing in heaven and some person that you've never seen before is going to come running up to you and say, man, thank you. And you'll be like, well, did I know you? And he'll say, no, you didn't know me, but that missionary that you wrote a check for or that mission trip that you went on was a part of bringing me to the Lord. We want the Word of God to run swiftly. But we also don't, all, don't just want to focus on the uttermost parts of the world, do we? Folks, there are churches around the world sending missionaries to us. Because we're not in all that great a shape. We are rapidly moving into what's known as a post-Christian nation. Europe did it several years prior to us, and we are right on their heels. You can go to Europe today and look at these big old fancy churches that at one time were filled with thousands of believers that are empty and nothing more than a place for someone to walk by and see a beautiful building. There's nothing there. Because what at one time had been a vibrant, living Christian community lost the effectiveness of the word spreading, the word going out, the word changing lives. It became all about something else. And the same thing is happening here. The church 
the organized church in a lot of ways is turning their back on the truth of God's word. They're saying Romans 1, 2, and 3 doesn't matter. Ignore that part of the scripture. The Bible doesn't fit in our society today, so we're going to adjust and we're going to make the Bible fit. We're going to overlook these things that the Bible teaches because obviously it's archaic in, in its design. So we'll pick and choose out of the Bible what's truth and what's not truth. And the church is weak and it will continue to be weak. At one time, the churches that used to go out and, and do amazing works and were vibrant, living, moving, breathing churches today are dead and dying because they deny the power of the Holy Spirit moving within them and they're not pouring out the Word of God. It becomes a social place. We probably all know about places like that where where church is a social gathering. We gather together at church and we meet one another and it's nice, but it, that's all it is. Paul says, pray for us that the word of God would just move forward, that it would not be hindered, that it would pour out in a mighty way. And that's what we desire. That's what we want. That's what we want to see. And then look at verse 2. And that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. I like that he said that we might be delivered and he didn't say that we might be defended. We might be delivered. A long time ago, Pastor Gerald told me, taught me a good lesson. He said, if you waste your time defending yourself, defending yourself is all you're going to do. And Pastor Gerald would never, there would be little things going on, little, little groups rising up and, and, and as they were causing grief, the, the elders and stuff would deal with it. But Pastor Gerald never wasted a moment of time defending himself. He says, man, I got, we have a role. We have a job to do. And that is putting forth the word of God. If all of a sudden the devil gets us distracted by defending ourselves, now all we're doing is defending ourselves. It's a waste of time. And folks, there have been a lot of things happening within. There's things we know of here in Idaho, isn't there? Where, where brothers, Christian brothers, should have been able to just say, well, whatever. You go your way, I'll go mine. What do they end up doing? They end up in court. They end up in the newspapers. They end up saying all this stuff about one another. And exactly what good did that accomplish for the body of Christ? When the body of Christ is torn, who bleeds? Christ does. The Lord bleeds. And we shouldn't not be a part of any of that. We want to say, hey, Lord... You deliver me from this guy, from these people, from what they're saying. But I'm, I, I want to stay on track, on purpose. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm not going to defend myself. I'm not going to argue with him. I'm not going to go through all these things. Listen, I'm just going to stay focused. I'm going to stay focused on what God has called me to do. So, Lord, deliver me from unreasonable, wicked people. People don't want to hear the truth. They don't know what, want to know the truth. Don't waste your time with them. We had this fella call the church one time, and, and every once in a while, folks who call a church, they have questions, you know, they want to ask. Have you ever had someone ask you a question that you know they don't care what the answer is? They're just looking for a, for a fight? I had this fella call me one time, and he says, the, the conversation begins something like, why is it that you believe in a trinity? You know that there's no such thing as a trinity. The Bible says, hero Israel, the Lord is one God. And so I begin. Well, I tell you, this is what the scripture is saying. That very same word that you're using to say there is only one God is the word echad. And it is a word used in Genesis uh, chapter 2 to say, for this reason, a man shall be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Echad. It speaks of a compound unity. It speaks of one in an understanding of like one cluster of grapes. And he says, well, yeah, it means one cluster of grapes, but it doesn't mean three gods. Oh, okay. So let's back up. All right. So the, I, I begin to talk to him and we start going through the scriptures. And all of a sudden you get to the point where you're like, oh, man, I've been on the phone with this guy for an hour. And he just wants to argue about everything. 
Do you know that the book of Proverbs says, answer not a fool according to his folly unless he seem wise in his own eyes? Well, we have this guy at, at JS. His name was Pastor Bob. He was called the smartest man in Yucca Valley. And that's where we would kick all the dudes like this. And so we, it was hilarious. I, I say, okay, well, let, let me let you talk to Pastor Bob. Because the guy I was talking to was Jewish. Pastor Bob's Jewish. That sounds like a good idea. I'll hook them up together. So I put them together. Pastor Bob's on the phone with that guy for five minutes. Five minutes. He talks to him for, for a couple of minutes. He quotes to him Proverbs. And he says, you know, Proverbs says, answer not a fool according to his folly, lest he seem wise in his own eyes. And the guy says, are you calling me a fool? And he says, well, if the shoe fits. And that was the end of the conversation. It's all over. And I'm sitting there going, man, this is an hour of my life. I'm not getting back. And this guy didn't want to hear nothing. He just want to fight. This is what Paul's talking about. Hey, deliver me from that stuff. Do you know Proverbs also says, answer a fool according to his folly so that he might learn and have a heart of understanding. Why does it say both? Because sometimes all a fool wants to do is fight. And sometimes you can turn a fool to the path of wisdom by instruction. And how do you know the difference? That's the gift of discernment. We need the gift of discernment so that we know, so that we recognize. And here Paul's saying, listen, deliver me from unreasonable wicked people. We want to be delivered. We want the word of God spreading. We don't want to waste our time defending. But look at verse 3. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Lord is faithful. In the Marine Corps we had a saying, Semper Fi. Always faithful. There's 10 million stories about the faithfulness of the Marine Corps. But I'm here to tell you that there is only one who is always faithful. And that is God. He is always faithful. And what's he say here in verse 3? Look, the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. Is the evil one, is the enemy, is the devil, is Satan able to do anything to you that God doesn't allow? You know Satan doesn't have free reign, right? You know he's not hiding behind a bush, going to do a surprise attack, and God doesn't know about it, and all he's going to get to you. No. Nothing comes into our life that doesn't pass through the hands of a God who loves us and gave himself for us. So whatever enters into our life has passed through God's hands and God is always faithful. Always. Now we don't always understand and we don't always know why. But whenever I think about that word, I always think of Judas because it was the first word ever uttered by Judas, the betrayer. Why? First thing he ever says in the scripture. Mary breaks open that costly oil of spikenard and pours it on the Lord. And and Judas says, why did she do that? That could have been sold and given to the poor. Jesus said, this thing that she's done, they will talk about for generations to come. The poor you will have always, but me, I won't always be with you. First question Judas ever asked was why? We don't know all the whys, and we never will. We will never, ever know the whys. But I know who. I know who I trust. I know in whom I have believed. And he is the one that is going to make everything make sense. And it's not Obama, and it's not Bush, and it's not any of the other liars that will tell you whatever you want to hear so they get your vote, so they can go give themselves a raise while the rest of us are headed to the poorhouse. It's not about any of those guys. It's not about any of that junk. It's all about the Lord. It's all about Him. So when I don't understand and when my heart is grieved, and it has been grieved, then when I come to that place, Pastor Chuck Smith would always say, when you come to a point where you don't know where to go, fall back on what you know. Jesus loves me. 
He loves me. I don't know how this all fits. I remember being on a worship team in, in uh, Yucca Valley, and we got word that this, this kid, 10 years old, I had a 10-year-old son at that time, 10-year-old boy, <clears throat> I used to remember his name. It slipped my mind right now. It'll come to me in a minute. You remember? Anthony Martinez. 10-year-old Anthony Martinez playing with his brothers in an alley in Banning, and this car pulls up. And the car pulls up and tries to take his little brother. And Anthony steps up and grabs his little brother and says, no, you go back to the house. And then as he's going back to the house, the guy grabbed Anthony, put him in the car, and drove off with him. And there was a statewide manhunt looking for this guy. We, they found out right away, but, you know, they didn't have all the signs that they got now. Out in California, they got signs. If they do an Amber Alert, everybody on the planet knows what you're driving and where you're going. But they didn't have that then. And for days, you know, we're all praying. His parents were Christians. The, the, his mom and dad were Christians. And, and so they were calling for prayer. And the church is praying. And we're just praying and believing that God's going to do a miracle. And I remember, I'll, I'll never forget, Sunday morning, standing up for worship when we, when we got the word that they found him. And he was dead and naked. And there ain't no way that that ain't wrong. That is so... I couldn't even hardly continue playing worship. I remember I'm just standing up there crying and playing the instrument and, and thinking, man, that's so wrong. But if, if I don't put my trust in God, where are you going to put it? Well, you're going you're gonna to hope that the justice system comes through? You're going to hope that, that one day he's going to get his? All I know is that God is perfectly just and perfectly righteous. And that little boy being in heaven like we shared this morning, that's not the booby prize. Him getting to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And he was a believer and he goes to be with Jesus, to be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord. But I do know that there will be people called to give account for what was done. God's going to do that. He's the one who brings justice. He's the one who is able to apply mercy. He's the one able to do the things that need to be done. Why? Because God is faithful. Just because I don't have all the answers to Anthony Martinez doesn't mean I'm going to lose faith in what God does. When Cindy got cancer and we all put up signs in our, in our church and we put signs up in our homes, said, believe. Believe. We're believing that she's going to be cured. We're believing that, that God's going to do a miracle. We're believing all the way to the time when God said, Cindy, come home. So what do you do the morning after? I don't believe anymore. I still believe. God knows what he's doing. And I don't have to take his place. Why? Because God is always faithful. I don't care how it feels. If it feels wrong or it feels different, it isn't God that's off. It's us. We got to trust him. Who else in our lives would ever do the things that God does for us? The way that God loves us, the way that God cares for us, the way that that God will be there for us. Because God is always faithful. He will always be faithful and he will establish you And he will guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you. Both that you will do the things we command you. Now, what's their confidence in? We have confidence where? In the Lord concerning you. That's the way to have confidence. It's not, well, I got confidence that you're going to do the right thing. But be careful. I'd love to tell you that I always do the right thing when faced with a choice. But... Kathy will tell you the truth. I don't always do the right thing. Where's our confidence in? Our confidence is in the Lord. I remember, folks, there when I, when I was growing up in, in the ministry and I, I was coming up that I got kind of put together in a group in the church that we were going to that was kind of anti the pastor. It was an anti-pastor group. You ever seen any of those before? And so I was part of this anti-pastor group I didn't really know much about. But I, I was putting, I was just looking at my pastor through this, this 
microscope. I mean every little thing that wasn't right. This isn't right, this isn't right, this should be that, that should be this. Of course, it's easy to do that when you're not in the microscope. It's easy to put someone else in it and find all their faults. It's, it's another thing when you're willing to do it to yourself. But I was placing all my confidence in him. And I remember this, this group got this book. It was called The Tale of Three Kings. And they lay this book out and handed it all to us. And they read it. And those knuckleheads, they, they read that book. And they all thought that they were still right. And I read that book. I, I sat up with Kathy, read it all in one sitting, read it out loud to her. And I could hardly get through it. I'm bawling like a baby, convicted by the Spirit that I am fully wrong. I'm throwing spears at God's anointed. What business do I have to attack God's anointed? Isn't God in control? And if the pastor is wrong, can't God fix him? And if the pastor needs to be removed, can't God do it? Sure he can. He can do all those things. So where should we put our confidence? In God. So we have our confidence in the Lord that you're going to do the right thing. Why? Because if I stumble, if I fall, if I end up off track, God will get us on track. He's not going to let us go too far down the wrong road before the choker chain gets a hold of us and the feet come off the ground. Right? So we put our confidence in the Lord for our confidence is in Him. That you will both... Uh, do the things that we have commanded you. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God. You know that's what God does, right? Romans 5 says, oh, So now we glory in tribulation, for tribulation produces patience, patience character, character hope, and hope does not disappoint, for the love of God is poured out on our lives. How? By the Holy Spirit. God gives us the ability to love. And that's not that sloppy love that just says everything's okay. We all learn at a pretty early age that sometimes loving our children means we tell them no, not we let them do whatever they want. We tell them, Johnny, take your hand out of the fire. Because his hand being in the fire is not a good idea. We discipline those whom we love, and we want the love of God. The agapeo. The agapeo, four kinds of love in the Greek, right? Phileo, brotherly love. Storge, love between and among a family. Family love, love that you have within a family. Eros, that, that sexual love. And agapeo, self-sacrifice in love. And that is God's love. That's the way God loves us, and that's what we're called to, to love that way. So... This is part of that prayer. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. What's the patience of Christ? That I eagerly wait the appearance of my Lord Jesus Christ. We have need of endurance. The road we walk is long. It's, it's wrought with perils. But I'm going to have patience. I'm going to eagerly wait. I'm going to keep my... What did the Lord say? When you see these things going on around you, what did he say? Lift up your head for your redemption draws near. Paul would write in the book of Romans, For now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. Do you know that today Jesus is closer to coming back than he was yesterday? And he'll be even closer tomorrow, should tomorrow come. We want to have that patience in Christ. Who... the. Peter would write, you know, in those last days, scoffers are going to come and they're going to say, where is the Lord's appearance? For 2,000 years, people have been saying, here comes the Lord, here comes the Lord, and the Lord's never come. Everything continues on as it always has. Isn't that what Peter said? But the Bible says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but he is long-suffering, desiring that no one would perish. God waits for the last one who will receive salvation to receive. And aren't you thankful he waited for you? So if he's going to wait for another, so be it. I'll patiently wait for him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly and not according to the traditions which he received from us. What's this walk disorderly? It's, it's speaking of two things. One, a persistent practice. It's a military term of someone who won't stay in ranks. A guy who's always fallen out of rank. It's not someone who occasionally fell out of rank. 
but he's doing okay. No, this is a guy who don't care, not trying to walk in ranks. We actually talked about it a little bit this morning. <clears throat> if you got a brother caught in sin, one who is named a brother, the church, the body is required to call a brother out, to say it's not okay. And, and in extreme cases, to, for that brother to be told, hey, you can't fellowship here. If you can't acknowledge that this is what God's word says, then it's not a place for you. The Bible says, turn him over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his soul might be saved. What's that mean? That when he's get, got bumped around in the world, his heart, his desire will be to return to fellowship and he'll make a choice that says, yeah, no, this is wrong. I need to put this out of my life and move forward. The heart is always restoration. Well, he says here, withdraw yourself from any brother, someone who calls himself a brother, who doesn't walk in rank, who isn't following the teachings of God's word, which you have received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. Now, he's going to define disorderly a little bit further because there was a specific issue going on there in Thessalonica. We'll see it in a minute. But again, here we have the Hebrew mindset. How are you taught? Follow me. Paul would say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Follow me as you see me follow Christ. We want that manner of life. We want more than just the word, more than just the knowledge. We want it to to impact our lives. Verse 8, he says, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. Again, he lays out the example. He said, we weren't lazy. We were working. We were doing the things that ought to be done. Not because I didn't have the right to say you should support this work as we're trying to plant the church here. But he said, hey, we were providing for you a good example. An example of life and living that you would follow that example. And then he goes on. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this. If anyone will not work, neither shall he eat. Here's what was going on. Thessalonica and 1 Thessalonians, he taught them about the rapture. In 2 Thessalonians, there was a group within the body who decided, well, if the rapture's coming, then we just do nothing and wait for Jesus. Man, that's, that, I don't read that nowhere in the scripture. Be lazy, lay around, looking for, we want to look for the return of Christ. But what did Jesus say to do? Occupy until I come. Do business until I come. That wicked servant was the servant that said, my master delays his coming. And he began to just be lazy and beat the other servants. Jesus said, well, that's not the way we're supposed to be. We're supposed to be doing what we're supposed to do. So Paul says to the church, hey, if he won't work, if he won't work, he don't eat. He didn't say if he can't work. He said if he won't work. There's a difference, right? Even in, that, in those days, there were people who could not work. And it, they would be out on the street begging for alms. And it was customary for the people walking into the temple to give them alms to give to those who couldn't work the blind the lame those were the ones that were out that's where jesus would walk into the temple and heal guys that were out there begging for alms they were out there looking for their their sustenance but what you didn't have was someone who was able to work who was out there saying hey we'll work for food yeah you know that's bunk right i learned that i was working in the mobile oil refinery in Torrance. And we were building a, a Edison substation off the refinery. And as we're building that substation, we had a ton of stuff that needed done. And one day on our way in, we seen a guy standing there with a sign that said, we'll work for food. And we said, well, dude, it's your lucky day, bro. You just won the lottery. I'm a, you're going to get a job. The job has health benefits it paid at the time 13 bucks an hour. You come and, and work and you can have work. We at least, this job's going to run at least three to four months. So you're, you're set for three to four months. You know how long he worked? Maybe 20 minutes. And then he walked off. I don't think he meant we'll work for food. 
If you will not work, you should not eat. Our country's got it backwards. We just want to give everybody a hand out. The reality is God's word calls for us to give people a hand up. I love the fact that in Idaho you can glean. Isn't that cool? That you can, that, that Cole had an opportunity with Herb to go out and dig potatoes. How you call them? Taters? He had an opportunity to go out and dig taters. And he went out and as much as he wanted to dig, he could get. And it was just a matter of if you're willing not to be lazy, go dig and you can, you live a long time on potatoes. Then you can do cook potatoes a lot of ways. <laughs> so if a man will not work, God's word says, then he should not eat. For we hear that there are some who walk, <coughs> who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but they're busybodies. In the Greek, it, it says, there are those not, how's it, how do they put it? There are busybodies doing no business. Busybodies doing no business. People aren't working, but they're spending all their time going around and spreading rumors and, and talking and doing all this nonsense. And that's what Paul is defining as the disorderly there in, in Thessalonica. He says, listen, don't even hang out with those people. If they won't work... And they're just talking and gossiping and doing all this stuff. They're just infecting you with garbage. And you need to remove yourself from that place so that it's not going on. There was a time for Kathy and I, we had some friends we really cared about. But I got on the board of elders at Joshua Springs. And every time I got together with these guys, man, it was complain, 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 blah, but this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. It's like, dude, I don't even want to be around you no more. Why, why, are you do, why do you do this? Why are you, we actually told them, hey, we can't, we're not hanging out no more if this is what it's about. If we can't hang out and play cards and have fun and have a nice, but if all it's going to be is griping, complaining, and, and running, you know, all this, this talk and junk about other people, then we're done. And but it's happened a couple times in our lives that we lost friendships to people because that's where they wanted to be. But that's not where I want to be. And so God's word lays it out. Hey, we're not, we're not supposed to be around that kind of stuff. Now those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. You know, that's nice speak for tell them to shut up, go to work, and eat their own bread. Stop trying to live off of everyone else. You know, one of the first things, it's, it's kind of sad, but it happened, uh, it, it happened a lot at JS. Not so much here, we don't see it so much. But we'd have people come through every time they, they can't pay their electric bill, they can't pay this, they can't pay that, and they'd come to the church. And you'd see them month after month after month, all the time, you know, coming and, and, and wanting handouts. And you start to get, you, you start to get a little... I don't know, sideways about it all. Like, seriously, can't you do something? You got to come every month for this, and you got to come every month for that. Go to work. Cut something out. You know, why, it, why is it the responsibility? Now, it's one thing for the body to stand with a brother or sister in need. Hey, that's great. I love doing that. But there comes a time where it's like, this is a little much. This is a little bit much. Paul's saying, listen, you tell them, be quiet, go to work, and eat their own bread. Provide for themselves. But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And that's where God gets me every time I start feeling that way. Don't grow weary in doing good. Don't grow weary. If, if you feel the Lord's calling you to do this or calling you to do that, and you think, oh, nobody notices, nobody cares, nobody's seeing Paul says, don't grow weary doing good. God sees, and he will reward you openly, Scripture says. Who cares? Nobody else ever sees it at all. Who are you doing it for in the first place? Do all things as unto the Lord. We want to do it to him. We want to do it as unto him. And so we want to lay it out before him. We don't want to grow weary in doing good. We want to be able to move forward and lead people and guide people in the truth. 
And hey, you got a brother who's being lazy and, and over and over and over again having to come to you, then it's time to set him down and say, hey, we need to make some changes, bro. Love does that, right? Doesn't God do that for us? And we ought to also do that for one another. Now, if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him, that he may be ashamed. But listen, do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. The purpose behind withdrawing yourself or letting someone know that this sin in their life is affecting you and you can't hang out anymore is not to to bum them out or destroy them or hope that they you know, are just cast out into outer darkness, you're you're admonishing him as a brother. I do my children no good if I bail them out of trouble every time they get in trouble. I do my kids no good if I I don't ever show them that they need to learn to take responsibility. And we ought also to do the same within the body of Christ. It's not all about sloppy agape and just love no, no matter what. We love no matter what, but we also need to be willing, in accordance with the book of Ephesians, to speak the truth in love. This isn't okay. That needs to be addressed. And we have to be willing to take that responsibility. Verse 16, Now may the Lord of peace Himself give you peace always and in every way, and the Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul, with my own hand. Why is that important? Because there was a spurious letter. There was a letter that went to Thessalonica that said it was from Paul but wasn't signed from him. And so Paul closes his letter. Look, I'm signing this letter. This is me. This isn't a spurious letter. This isn't one just floating around, which is a sign in every epistle I write. So he's telling the church at Thessalonians, hey, if someone's spreading a letter around and it isn't signed by me, then it's not for me. So that he could give them instruction that they wouldn't. Remember, that was part of the problem. They received a letter saying they were in the tribulation. And that the rapture wasn't coming. And that they were in in the period of time where God was pouring out his wrath upon them. So Paul says, listen, I signed this with my own hand. And it's a sign on everything I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Paul always leaves us with grace. Because even when we're dealing with the harsh things, the harsh realities, the drag, the bummer, the I don't know, I don't like confrontation. Maybe some of you people do, but I don't like it. I don't look forward to it. I wake up in the morning and go, oh, I hope I have confrontation today. <laughs> but God's word does call us that we, we shouldn't be afraid of it. That as long as we stand in the truth, we have grace. We speak that truth in love. It's okay. It's okay to say this, not, this is not all right. This is wrong. You're going in a bad direction and you need to get on track. Had an opportunity to pray a few weeks ago with a, with a couple um, who, the, well, they got saved. They got saved. And as soon as they got saved, as soon as we finished praying, I told them, now we got to do something about the living situation. Because it's not okay. It's not okay. You give your life to Jesus Christ, that means we don't live together. I'm not telling you you have to get married, but I'm telling you God's word says that what you're doing is wrong and you're not going to be blessed by God living in sin. So you need to realize that this is what God's word is calling you to. Now, what would I have rather done? Woohoo, man, welcome to the family. Great to have you here. You know, wonderful. But did I do a brother or sister a service if I tell them what they're doing is not wrong? We've got to be willing to, to step on a toe now and again. That we can gain a brother, instruct a sister, so that they walk with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, we're going to spend some time in worship. We invite you to hang out and worship with us. We also want to provide opportunity tonight as on Sunday nights, for the, the working of the Holy Spirit. So if you stay and you're hanging out and worshiping and you feel like the word of the Spirit is giving you a word for a brother or sister or you desire to pray for a brother or sister that's here, uh, if you want to come forward and pray, Kathy will be up front. If you'd like to pray about the baptism of the Holy Spirit or uh, talk to her in regard to that, 
she'll be available for those things and we'll just continue to worship and close out the evening. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you that we can be in this place. We thank you for an opportunity to, <coughs> to study your word, to draw near to you. Lord, we pray that you, uh, by your spirit, would move in a mighty way. Father, you would instruct your body here at Calvary Chapel Buell that we might bring glory and honor to you. Father, that we might follow the examples laid out in First and Second Thessalonians. And Lord, that we would just not be those who would hear the word and, and think, oh, that applies to me, and then tomorrow forget about it. But that we would be doers of the word, applying that word, moving forward in the power of your spirit, equipped for every good work that you've called us to. Lord, we thank you that you establish us, that you make us to be able to stand. And Lord, we ask that you would do that perfect work and continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. We give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.